Colonization is a historical and ongoing form of territorial, economic, and mental conquest in which one group of indigenous people is subordinated and put in service to another group of people under the forces of imperialism. Decolonization is a set of ideas and lived experiences that challenge imperialism through forms of bottom-up disobedience to historical and ongoing colonization. Theories and manifestations of decolonization prioritize indigenous or non-Western forms of knowledge, spirituality, cultural practices, and sovereignty. In today's episode, Phil speaks with Aliuba and Sungu Uyu on the understanding of and struggle for decolonization. Hey Aliuba, hey Sungu Uyu, welcome to Troublemakers, the podcast. We're here today to talk about decolonization. Everybody's talking about decolonization, um, so I'm eager to hear your take on it. Uh, but first, uh, tell us who you guys are in relation to this conversation. Um, uh, this is Aliuba. Um, you, you guys can't see us, so we have to find a way to tell you who is speaking. This is an accent from Gambia, so you can distinguish it with accents. You will hear Sungu Oyo, of course. Sungu speak, so your accent. Uh, my name is Sungu Oyo. I'm a writer and organizer. Um, I, I am Aliuba. And uh, in relation to this conversation on decolonization, for us, it, um, our whole lives have been spent looking at the colonial state and the colonial project and how it impacts us today with the neocolonial state and the neocolonial project. So for us, it's a, it's a very material conversation. It's not a conversation that's just... Um, ideas and meta ideas and whatnot it's a it's a sort of a, a conversation that is rooted very deeply in everyday life like for us like um yeah yeah so yeah it is uh it's yeah it's a deep conversation all right sungu take it away uh for us i think uh when we talk of decolonization we are speaking of the whole sphere of our existence uh, as African people. We are, sp we are talking of uh, the economic sphere, we are talking of uh, the politics, we are talking of the culture, we are talking of, in essence, uh, uh, our ways of being. And I think uh, the best way to sum it up is an essay which uh, Aliu wrote, which I think uh, he will be speaking on. Uh, it's titled, Decolonization as Material Struggle. Because decolonization and the struggle for decolonization must be anchored on the material conditions. Um, you know, Rodney wrote, uh, Rodney says uh, uh, in one of his books that colonial man was asking a set of questions. And um, the, the, the neo-colonial man is again asking a different set of questions. And it's because in as much as we are up against the same systems of oppression and domination, the conditions which inform our, our reality today have to in many ways change and the system we are up against has become more sophisticated, more interconnected. And so we really have to do a deep analysis of what we are up against before we can take it head on. Um, you know, like, um, you know, for example, um, 
I did I I know like when France for non sort of wakes up today and looks at us is like you guys are still talking about decolonization. I thought we addressed <laughs> that in the sixties. Like what the fuck happened? Like you know. So um, can we cuss in this yeah, podcast? Yeah, yeah. A sour, All right? Because I mean, oh Rodney like mm. comes back from eighty one and then oh nineteen eighty and then looks at us today. We are still talking about this. It's actually kind of very sad that um, Africans and the global South still have to talk about decolonization. And not only the global South, but uh, the First Nations of America, Native America, is still talking about decolonization. Uh, these are people whose land was stolen f under their feet and put in the reservations. Like, kind of wild, like, you know, your own land. <laughs> you are. They told you, like, you like I go to Phil's house. I was like, Phil, you and all your kids here and your your family and everything, you go and live there in that little hut. I live here now, you know. So um, because decolonization, the, the reason why decolonization is important because it's material. I mean, there's a philosophical aspect to it. Um, some scholars and some um, thinkers have um, coincided um, and 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 read reduced, you know, that reductionism of decolonization to just like that uh, that category, uh, like a category of thought. So you hear about coloniality and decoloniality, Walter Mignolo, Anibal Keanu, and all these people. But for us, um, decolonization is about land, bread, and water. We still haven't achieved this dream where our people can have sufficient food, sufficient water, and sufficient, you know, the basic bare necessities of life. And if you can't achieve that, then we can't say that decolonization have happened. Even if we have all these superior ideas about, oh yeah, we know white supremacy, like why would a white guy even actually, or, or a white person interview me on decolonization? And then um, I'm sure that one day you will do this and then somebody from that whole uh, decolonization as a philosophical category would uh, spend the whole time trying to remind you that, ah, but how can a white person talk to me about decolonization, right? Because uh, they, they, people, like, because identity politics essentializes race, essentializes gender, without recognizing the essentialism that happens. But for us, it's more urgent. It's not about uh, that. You know, for us, what is important is, you're a white person, you are a brown person, you are a black person, if you understand the struggle for decolonization, which is a struggle for the basic necessities of life and also dignity. Because dignity is immaterial, but it's objective. It's real, you know. So, yeah, so, so for us, um, I think um, at least uh, at Muamco, the organization we are now building, because Muamco is uh, constantly being built, and it will be built constantly because it's dialectical, like the, the loss of nature itself. So um, for us, uh, decolonization is about, um, it's not about a theoretical dance to nowhere. It's about winning something that our people can touch and feel. Is Cabral, what did Cabral say again, comrade? About uh, ideas and people's heads and things. Uh, Cabral says, uh, cannot defeat uh, imperialism by hurling epithets or abuses at it. Uh, the people are more interested in food, housing, da-da-da-da. 
because this is what informs their material existence. I've paraphrased it in some ways, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, but I think uh, uh, for us at Muamku and for many comrades across the continent, especially in the neocolonial states, uh, the land question remains at the heart of decolonization. In countries like South Africa, in countries like Kenya, you have a small minority owning 50 or 80% of the land, and the people are, are cramped up into the urban slums, into uh, the cramped up peasant holdings, small farmer holdings in the rural areas, which really cannot produce to a massive and sustainable scale. And so the land question has to be addressed, and it must be addressed because, one, the land offers access to housing and settlement, which is at the core and the basis of human dignity. And second, it enables production of food. Because you cannot do agrarian reform without addressing the land question. And so land redistribution and land reform is at the heart of decolonization. Because when the colonial experience, or, or rather, when Africans first con were confronted by the colonial experience, they were confronted by violence, and that violence was to cement a control over the land because the land being the productive base mm -hmm. was the first thing that the colonial empire knew it needed to be able to sustain itself on the one hand and on the other hand to ensure that it deprived the indigenous populations of the capacity to produce so that they could be forced into the labor market. We talked the other day about the homestead and um, gender and uh, capitalism and this sort of estrangement of the parental figures from the homestead as a place of production. Yeah, because um, capitalism doesn't allow for uh, um, an environment where people can be happy and they can become who they are. So at the heart of decolonization, that is anti-capitalism. You know, it's it's a socialist vision of the world. Um, you know, a vision that, um, you know, because sometimes, you know, when we talk about socialism and communism, we make it so technical, you know, that uh, people, do, but basically what socialism and communism is saying is that you have the right to rest. You have the right to laser. You have the right to, to chill out, you know. You have the right to spend time with the family you know, with your kids, if you don't want kids, it's okay too, to just chill, like whoever you want to chill with, you know, to have that, that, that space, you know, to be able to, to, to be human, because capitalism constantly dehumanizes, and at the heart of decolonization and decolonial thought and practice is the rehumanization of colonial, the colonial human being, and the colonized human being, you know. And, and also, in the act of uh, uh, rehumanizing the colonized, it also rehumanizes the colonizer. Because um, imagine, like, you are in a project of oppression for so long. You lose your humanity in it. Because when you oppress, you don't only oppress uh, human beings. You oppress nature. You oppress the earth. You oppress everything that exists. Look at what capitalism have done to our planet. 
is this the youngest mode of production in the world like literally and history. in history literally like it's less than 300 years old and has destroyed the entire earth and the blink we have of an a, eye for our species i swear like how did this happen like but because look at what it was built on like it was it's a terrible idea that um that we have to have a mode of production i mean at before capitalism we oppressed each other you know we were just us and the animals around us but we didn't go so far as to destroy everything and you know marx talks about this in capital somewhere that um uh uh labor is like um, what was it the la- labor is like uh the husband and uh of and nature is like the 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 the, the mother or something you know but and of course like um Marx was speaking from a different time in a different context but what essentially uh, Marx was saying is that you cannot have exploitation of the means and the forms of production without having the exploitation of the earth and uh, and the forces of nature because nature have already furnished us with everything and the only thing now is to exploit it and um create something out of it you know and and one of the things i've disagreed with um when it comes to uh max and engels work is that uh, that the human being must conquer nature and then build something for us as africans we don't believe in the conquest of nature you conquer nature tomorrow you will not wake up here like <laughs> because nature is more powerful than us right I don't know where I'm going with this so I'm going to pass this to Sungu now you know <laughs> re-regulate and <laughs> know where we are going with this uh, I think I think for me there's something really important that Aliu brought up that uh, capitalism capitalism uh, is is uh, anti-rest and if we do a deep analysis of it capitalism is also anti-life capitalism is anti-people because uh, you look at capitalism and what it has done to our people and specifically to come back to what you asked uh, Phil uh, about the family unit and that estrangement uh, labor uh, the acquisition and exploitation of labor in many instances has always depended on stripping that family unit apart estranging different parts of the whole from the other you look at uh, the apartheid regime in south africa and how the miners lived in dormitory blocks where they would live away from their families for a year or for years on end before they could go back home you look at slavery and the conditions it was predicated on uh, 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 the kidnapping of africans and being shipped across the atlantic 14 million africans were shipped aclo- across the atlantic in the transatlantic slave trade Uh, uh of this 14 that this is what is said actual figures of course i am sure are much higher but records show it's 14 million people which means this was 14 million people plucked from family setups communal setups and sent into another whole sphere of the world and so um when 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 we when we talk of uh, of uh, uh, our struggle against the capitalist system it essentially is the struggle for our lives and the struggle for our souls the struggle for our existence and our dignity so what are some of the you spoke earlier about concrete conditions material gains that must be won um and that this is an essential ingredient of what decolonization is and means 
Uh, what does that look like in Kasumu? What does that look like in Gambia? And then also, why not just stop there? You know, because a lot of people have done great things in their home communities. What what you all are trying to do is to build this kind of Pan-African solidarity with Mwamko and other mm. undertakings. Mm. Um, wh why not just sort of like stop in your in your neighborhoods? Um, uh, because uh, colonialism is an international project. To defeat it would take an international project that um, we cannot isolate ourselves because um, oppressed people are never safe by themselves. They only survive through solidarity. Right now I'm wearing a T-shirt that says solidarity rocks, you know? Um, you know, because it's solidarity forever. Um, so um, when, we, when we look at this thing called decolonization, and can we even talk about de-neocolonization? De this English language is very difficult for us Africans. <laughs> we stumble a lot. <laughs> like, but, the, you know, because now we have defeated something called um, what Rodney called classic colonialism. And we need to be very clear in our language, you know, because now we're dealing with neocolonialism and the neocolonial state and what it looks like. But why is it that we don't have to stop in, in Kisumu or in Kololi where I live in Gambia or, or you know, in, in Usa River or in Leganga or in some little place in Pennsylvania? Why, do, why, why can't we stop there? Because we know necessarily that um, no one is safe from the international capitalist ruling class. And decolonization at the heart of it is a vision to destroy capitalism. And capitalism doesn't belong in a neighborhood. Uh, the internationalism of capitalism, not, uh, we can't give that word to capitalism. The interna internationalization of capitalism, we must build the internationalism of decolonization. Mm, mm. Because, um, um, uh, I mean, imagine like you build your little uh, intentional community or commune. Uh, and Marx talks about this when he analyzed the Paris Commune, which is a very interesting document. Of course, I know I talk about Marx a lot, but I don't talk about, it dogma about him dogmatically. I talk about him as one of the most interesting intellectuals. There's a reason why Marx became the most interesting philosopher and the most powerful thinker in the past 200 or so years in this world because he had some very interesting perspectives. And um, so you can't isolate yourself. There is no isolationism, but in our lack of isolation, we also don't capitulate. We, we build this dialectical sort of space where we veer between contradictions, but uh, we can't stay in, in one place. We can't build a revolution I mean, there's a, there's a long conversation about this in the communist movement, uh, permanent revolution by Trotsky or building socialism in one country. I'm going to pass this to Sungu because I really enjoy talking. <laughs> <laughs> you come from a long lineage of uh, griots and storytellers. <laughs> 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 uh, I think uh, I'll just pick off uh, where you left uh, in the sense that uh, we are up against a global system. Uh, today, if there is a water shortage here, the person responsible for it, at least at a structural level, might be on the other side of Africa, or that company might be in the heart of Europe.
And so we have to analyze uh, the system for what it is, do a concrete analysis of the concrete condition, identify who is behind what, how does this system operate, how does it affect us, how are all our struggles interconnected, and then we build a united front to confront uh, this system in the same way that those who came before us did. The only reason the struggle for struggle against classic colonialism in Kenya, for instance, failed in, uh, in Africa and, and other parts of the world failed. Uh, I'm, uh, the only reason why the struggle against classic colonialism in the colonized territories um, succeeded is because in that generation, these people were able to do a complete analysis, and especially after the Fifth Pan-African Congress, they were very clear. Who is our enemy? The colonizer. Who is our friend? The colonized people in our territories. Mm. What is it we need to do to defeat our enemies? Form the mass-based parties as vehicles of organization for our people. And, and they were able to connect all their struggles. And within a few years after the 5th Pan-African Congress held in Manchester, you see a wave of countries getting liberated from classic colonialism. And I think uh, it's because they identified how interconnected that system of colonization was, how the different colonial powers mutually supported each other and reinforced each other, and they understood that you could not defeat any one of them in isolation. You had to defeat all of them, wage an, a, a continued and protracted struggle against all that system and the countries or the, the nation states behind it. And, and, and one of the reasons why decolonization and anti-capitalism has to be international is because um, our struggle always asks new questions when it touches new places. You know, the, the questions that Iran is asking right now. It's very different from the questions Tanzania is asking. But when you look at them at a totality, there are questions that issue from parts that form a whole. You know, why do I have to wear a hijab if I don't want to? You know, why do I have to use Monsanto seeds if I don't want to? You know, very, very separated. But we look at them, we look at the structures of domination and structures, because our decolonization goes even beyond anti-capitalism. It also goes into anti-patriarchy. It goes into anti-white supremacy, and most importantly, even anti-imperialism. You know, so uh, the internal, uh, the internationalism of decolonization and anti-capitalism, and the creation and the visions for new worlds, uh, is uh, in, an integral part of our struggle. We can't do it any other way. Like I'm here right now. I come from Gambia, you know, a country fabricated by colonialism that has two million people exist inside another country. <laughs> Every time I think about it, so, you know, you know, Petani, Petani went and wrote on Facebook, I'm with my comrade Aliuba, he's come from a country uh, of two million people, they're inside Senegal and the Gambians, you know, Gambians really love this little country of theirs. They're like, he has to apologize to this great nation of ours. How can he say he's inside Senegal? <laughs> but technically, he's inside Senegal, like he wasn't mm -hmm. lying, you know? But um, I'm, 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 in, I'm coming from that place in West Africa. Sungu is coming from Kenya. You're coming from the United States, you know? I mean, if we didn't believe in the internationalisms of our struggles, we would not have been sitting here. We would have just sat in our neighborhoods, and then what would happen? 
you know, capitalists know each other. They build institutions. They actually build universities and research institutions. Under colonialism, they built anthropology to study the colonial people, you know, to know how they think so they can know how to oppress them better. And they have now, now they have their think tanks, they have their lobby institutions, they have their NGOs, they have all this under capitalism. If they're international and they're watching us and studying us, and how can we stay in one base? So that's why we cannot be narrow. And, 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 and that's why I think at some point we will have to talk about nationalism and patriotism. And what does this mean today for colonized people? Because most of these countries we came from were actually created by the enemy. And now we are sitting here celebrating uh, these borders that I'm sure our ancestors are sitting there drinking uh, Muratina and Busas like, what happened to these people? Like, we never approved of, yeah, this, these are not our kids, we have disowned them. You know, so yeah, we have to go there. Like, so again, Grandmaster, talk to us. Uh, I, I don't think I have uh, much to say. Uh, maybe just to add that uh, as we look at the question of uh, decolonization, it is, as we look at the question of decolonization, it is perhaps important to also think of uh, uh, the psychological warfare that was waged uh, against the colonized peoples, especially at the advent of enslavement followed by the colonial experience. And so there was this uh, sustained assault against intellectual knowledge, uh, the so-called uh, African knowledge, uh, so-called traditional knowledge. Uh, our intellectual tradition was assaulted and delegitimized. And, and, and in this scheme of psychological warfare, it has created inferiority complexes in such a way that even when we talk about decolonization, convincing the colonized man uh, and the colonized woman that this is what the colonial experience is, and this is what we need to move toward. And you are told, but there was benefits to colonialism. <laughs> it came with education and healthcare and whatnot. And it's because the psychological assault uh, was really strategic and, 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 and strong because, you know, uh, Cabral uh, uh, talks about uh, national liberation and culture. Mm. And he says, uh, uh, when he starts speaking about it, he says, when Goebbels, uh, Hitler's propagandist, had the word culture mentioned, took out his whisk pistol. That is how powerful culture is. Because, mm -hmm, because when, when, uh, when, a people are, when a people are able to sustain their culture and their ways of being, their ways of thinking, their ways of existence, and their ways of inter interaction with the environment, that against an assault as brutal as the colonial experience, that in itself is an act of resistance. And that is why, for example, today in the occupied territories of Palestine, uh, you will see uh, the Zionist government uh, preventing people, for example, from doing uh, traditional practices and ways of being like harvesting the olives and whatnot. Because so long as you are able to think and practice in, in, in your own culture, then you have resisted complete domination. And so decolonization also involves a process of intellectual restoration. Uh, we must look at our knowledge, analyze it, and decide on how we want to use it without anyone directing us. 
or, or suppressing us in any way on that front. You know, uh, and that's a good way to start this thing about narrow nationalisms, right? Because um, uh, Palestine, uh, uh, Palestine, for example, when you look at Palestine, you know, and um, how Israel has dominated the conversation on on Palestine, right? I mean, you know, for us in the movement, it feels like Palestine is the dominant conversation, but it's really not. Like when you step out a little bit and you are in the mainstream, you look at uh, evangelical and Pentecostal Christians like really like glorifying Israel. And Israel is able to be an observer or trying to be an observer state in the African Union when Haiti is a rejected membership in the African Union. So it tells you like you can do all the superstructural thing, but at the base, the power, where the power is, that's where Israel is, you know. Um, but when we talk about these nationalisms, like, how would an anarchist Palestinian talk about Palestine, you know? I think that's a very interesting thing to think about, right? Like, how would a person with anti-nationalisms and anti-patriotism, uh, all of these nation states, talk about Palestine as projected as a nation state that existed before Israel. Because at the heart of decolonization is also that, is that how, for me, for example, like, I'm not proud to be Gambian. I really am not. Like, I'm glad I was born there, but what really is Gambia? Gambia was fabricated on the 10th of August, 1889. You know, the act, the Ordinance Act of the British Empire that this is Gambia, and it belongs to us. In 1889, you know, it's like, that's just like a few years ago compared to the history of the people who've lived in that place, you know. So how can I, like, now, and then you see Gambians have this tension with Senegal, and you are inside Senegal. And then the Ken Kenyans and Tanzanians have their own little tension going on. Like, how can you have this over borders that really don't represent... Okay, if our ancestors actually have decided that, okay, we are going to draw these lines ourselves, then we can sit down and say, okay, I can be proud of it. My ancestor Oyo was there drawing the line, so... But these lines were drawn, and they have no representation to our aspirations, to our dreams, to our stories, to our myth, to our mythos, to anything. They were actually drawn for profit. Could you imagine that an entire, entire nations have been created for profit? Like, just for a minute, like, just think how wild that is. Like, do you know how huge Tanzania is where we are doing this podcast right now? And Tanzania is actually created by colonialism. And, 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 and was created primarily for profit and for power. How do we talk about this decolonially? You know, like... And why didn't Kuruma say we have to dismantle these nation states and create African the the African federal system? You know, this is like like the United States of America. 
which he was using as an example because there were all so many few examples at that time. But why did he talk about this? I suspect that he did it because he understood clearly, first of all, these nations, a nation of two million people, how can they resist like a power of America, for example? Like Gambia. I can, if Gambia defeats <laughs> America, everybody will be wondering what happened. What type of witchcraft were they using, you know? So um, we have to talk about this oil. What do you think? And just Actually, a second. Actually, you know, one of the most interesting things, uh, if you look at especially the colonial experience, uh, Kenya, where I come from, for example, uh, it initially started off, uh, uh, the British crown created what is called the Imperial British East African Company, which was given the power to lord over and administer the territory and make profit on behalf of the crown. So it started off as a company, and if you look at its forms and dimensions to date, it still is a company. There is a small group of people. By who a company, you mean Kenya started as a company? Yes, Kenya, the country, started as a company. And if you look at how it is run to date, it is run like a company in that there is a few people within that territory whose ultimate aim is to make as much profit as they can, is to make as much profit as they can from the sweat of the people, from the blood of the people, and they, they are ready to do anything to make that money. They will kill, they will dominate, they will oppress, they will exile. And so we really need to look at form and content. And you know what's most interesting is that uh, last week, the Kenyan vice president is on record saying, literally addressing the press, saying, uh, you know, this, uh, this government is, is a company and it has shareholders. And so if you are not one of the shareholders, don't be in a hurry to receive the dividends. And that is uh, the vice president telling the people of the country. Also implicit in that statement is that it's a moral value or moral good to be a shareholder. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. There's something subtle there, um, which I think, you know, going back to this term that uh, you have concocted, Eliu, uh, this... Uh, what did you call it? De-neocolonization, something of the kind. Um, this Isn't this what makes things a lot more complex for our generation, for the 21st century, compared to kind of the uh, anti-colonial process of the mid-20th century? Um, you have, you seemingly have Kenyans running Kenya, for instance, as a company. Um, we know it's more complex than that. Mm -hmm neoliberalism is so totalizing and layered and mm. it's it's uh, it's visible everywhere but it's also invisible you know it, it feels like this matrix or something that we live in um the enemy is not always clear and you guys are here talking about you know if we're going to overturn the this system of domination we need to fight it as a totality mm -hmm. how are we ever as a species going to get to the level of analysis that we need in order to you know uh, push neoliberal capital off of its throne? Sung. I think uh, uh, the first thing uh, is, to, is to recognize that our people see and recognize and understand oppression. When you go to the village or whichever corner of Africa and you say so-and-so is doing this, 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 the people know and understand what is happening. And uh, at Muamko, we have been talking about 
people having an instinctive uh, understanding of oppression. Literally, when they see something happening, they know this is wrong. But we have been thinking and trying to work toward getting people to a rational understanding of oppression. Uh, an oppression which has concrete analysis and where we are able to identify the different forces that are at play in that whole scheme of things and able to strategize on how best to confront them. And there is uh, uh, some work Aliu is doing around uh, courage and clarity, which I know fits, fits well into your question. And so I'll not, uh, I'll not go into it at this point, but I'll let him uh, speak to it directly. No, uh, uh, you're not putting this responsibility on me. We are writing this book together. <laughs> and now, because this book has not come out and we have promised people, we have traveled across the continent together, and we promised people that there's a book coming out. <laughs> that first chapter is called Courage and Clarity. But yeah, um, like um, our win is inevitable. Um, as totalizing as oppression can be, um, the people's yearning for freedom. There was a time when, um, I mean, if you lived on the, the transatlantic slave. Just, just, just yeah. stop there. Our uh -huh. win is inevitable. Yeah. That's a very bold claim. Why do you make that claim? Because the people have always win. That's, uh, that's the justification I'm making now. Like, if you were a slave under the slave mode of production, whether it's the enslaved Africans in Haiti and whatnot, you know, at that time, I'm sure there's a lot of people there like, ah, this is, this is our natural condition. We are going to be like this. But as long as oppression exists, the yearning for freedom will exist. And the yearning of freedom is greater because oppression sleeps in king-size beds and is comfortable. The yearning for freedom burns every fucking thing to the ground. So it's, it's a higher emotion and a higher feeling than oppression. Like, like us right now, we're very comfortable, yeah? But somebody who is trying to come and steal these gadgets right now is very agitated and ready. He's thinking of every fucking angle that he can use to get into this space. And that's how the yearning for freedom is. So wherever the oppression exists, the people will wake up to it. And once people see oppression, they can't unsee it. Even if you want to unsee it, you can't unsee it. Just to be a devil's advocate, though, mm. uh, this yearning exists. Uh, the people in mass want their liberation. Mm -hmm. um, but they're not only against the person sleeping in that king-size bed or the, the mansion and its bodyguards that you know surround that king-size bed. They're also against shell companies. Yes. They're also, you know, there are so many layers. They're yeah. against tax... Uh, Tax havens, you know, there are all these layers. Um, I mean, I'm not, I don't think you're saying raw motion is what fights that, but how do you respond to this? No, uh, uh, the thing is, is that there's levels, like you're saying. There's a hierarchy of the, the desires of freedom. Um, Franz Fanon talks about something like this in The Wretched of the Earth, that uh, the people's freedom sometimes starts with superstition, you know. They say, oh, we are suffering this because there's a white three-legged horse that is running around at night and snatching things, you know, doing things. And then they qualify, they move from that, and they now turn to each other. It's Sungu is the cause of my problem. Now I have to kill Sungu, you know. And then one day they kind of realize, and this is dialectical, of course, but he was giving an abstract example that they realize, oh, the white, the, the three-legged horse 
And Sungu has never been the problem. It's the problem has been that person who lived there and has built these companies and whatnot. The people's freedom, that's why freedom also is, has to be an intentional thing. You know, Sungu talks about uh, what we were talking about at Muamko about instinctual understanding and rational understanding. The, the instinctual nature of the human being is that they desire freedom. The rational, that's where the, the work is now. There will always arise a class amongst the people, the oppressed people, who will start now talking about this. We see this everywhere. Like at the beginning of the struggle against slavery in America, we see people like Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Nat Turner. What were they using? They were using religious sentiment. So at that point, that's what they had. And you see the 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 the, the, the gestation of that struggle. And then you start seeing now people coming out, like just rejecting, like Frederick Douglass, like how can you talk about Christianity when you don't believe in it? And that's a new stage in that struggle against slavery and all of that. So uh, the thing is that uh, the people's struggle is a righteous struggle and is a living struggle and is a life. And that the people's win is inevitable because uh, when we look throughout history, the people have not struggled against anything except they've warned against it. That is a fact of history. People have struggled against slavery and won. People have struggled against feudalism and won. People have struggled against a whole bunch of um, uh, uh, oppressions and won. And capitalism will die because the people are struggling against it. It might not look so um, real today, it might look like it's only a few of us talking about it, but there's so many people. And the people is that everybody understands. You think, um, like when we are here in this space, that 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 woman who is uh, doing the laundry at that place every day from whatever, whatever time, you think they, are, they, they, they enjoy doing that and they're smiling at you superficially. They don't. They instinctually understand that this is not the way I'm supposed to live my life. Because when they go home, the kids are sleeping. When they're leaving, the kids are sleeping. So they aren't already instinctually understand. So when you talk to them, they will. when you tell them we must kill capitalism, they ask you, what is capitalism? And you explain capitalism is why you are here and you can't see your kids and chill with them. They're like, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I think, yeah, that's, I've been talking for a long time. Sungu, how does climate fit into this discussion? On 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 uh, decolonization. Uh, on on um, this uh, optimism, this eternal optimism that Aliu seems to have that uh, we will be liberated. You know, um, I think there's a lot of like fatigue in the climate struggle, climate justice struggle. Um, there's a lot of disillusionment and hopelessness. We've gone through even before the kind of like recent uprisings that we've seen. You know, maybe a decade or more ago. Mm. You know. Uh, Lots of suicides and uh, depression and wounds, you know, serious wounds in our communities around the world amongst people uh, fighting for climate justice uh, to spare us from the worst of the worst. Mm. We see, you know, uh, industrialization, capitalism accelerating and being more and more ruthless on the climate. Um, and uh, at least from, like, the perspective of some of our leading scientists in the world, Things look pretty bleak if we continue with these trends. Um, and there's kind of this alarmist, like, you know, now is the emergency. There's no turning back. It's now mm. or never. Mm. Um, 
is it inevitable that we will win the climate justice struggle? Uh, I think uh, uh, the first thing uh, to recognize is that uh, the struggle for climate justice is, uh, is a just struggle. Uh, it is a legitimate struggle. And at this particular moment in history, it, it, it confronts us in such a way that we actually are in, uh, how would I call it, are in haste to find a solution. Uh, but we also have to recognize that we are in an era where we, we, we should be in a hurry, but not in haste. We should be in a hurry because we have to strategize and we have to think through all these processes. If we look at the history of different struggles, I mean, we are in Tanzania, right south, at the southern border in Mozambique. The Portuguese were in Mozambique for 400 years. Uh, that was their colony, but they left. Uh, the, the, the struggle for climate justice, I would say, uh, visibly uh, has been going on maybe for the past uh, less than one century. And that is not to say that that is a short time, but it's just to say that struggles can be protracted. But this struggle also confronts us sort of uh, with a timeline. It's not like we can say we have 400 years to struggle or something of the sort. But when we talk about climate specifically and, 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 and the emissions and rising global temperatures happening, we have to look at, you mentioned uh, the experts and the scientists, and I was looking at one of the uh, IPCC reports, uh, and, there's, uh, and, and, and when you read through them and you read through climate research and greenhouse gas research, the global north has, uh, over the past 100 years, the global north has uh, emitted 92% of total greenhouses in the world today. But the global north does not want to take action. I saw in the last uh, COP conference of parties, the one held in Egypt, uh, there was some commitment towards uh, climate reparations. But even that is not enough because for us in Africa, we experience the climate crisis uh, uh, as a lived reality. Uh, the Sahara is expanding down south. In certain parts of West Africa, whole villages which used to be productive farmlands are no longer, uh, can no longer be farmed. And these young people and their families move into the cities where the reality is bleak and they find themselves in the urban slums. And when the slums become unbearable, they, they find their way across the Sahara and attempt to cross the Mediterranean into Europe because they think that that is where they will find a better life. And they cannot blame them because really there is nothing left for them in these countries. And, and you look at these images of all these young people we are losing in the seas, in the oceans, in the drownings uh, of the Mediterranean, in the heat of the Sahara because crossing a desert is brutal. It's brutal, and the Sahara is brutal. The millions of young people we are losing year in, year out. And, and, and we look at the cause, and it boils down to the climate crisis, which in many ways is a crisis of capitalism. It's a crisis of the capitalist system because it is the factories and, and the system behind them that is producing those greenhouses, that is cutting the forests, which are carbon sinks, that is uh, decimating whole protected zones. Look at the Amazon and what Bolsonaro did to it, opening it up for logging. Look at the Congo forest and now how they are decimating it. Like, it's, it's, it's such a serious crisis. And I think at some point uh, at Muamco, uh, we had a discussion around climate and we said, uh, uh, 
uh, we were with Aliyu in Kisumu sometime last year and we said maybe we need to move beyond climate justice uh, because our people have always been attuned to the environment. We have lived with that environment uh, in a very symbiotic way. We take care of our environment and our environment takes care of us. It's a very symbiotic relationship. None exploits the other. And so we are thinking uh, we need to move beyond justice because justice, as currently spoken about, has also lost uh, the fire in it and moved towards more towards ecological sovereignty, which is linked to the question of self-determination, and perhaps move even beyond ecological sovereignty to, to ecological autonomy. Because we and our environment need our autonomy from this system that is killing us both. I just want to add um, something that, um, um, uh, for me, like learning from different um, philosophical traditions, one of the things I learned about justice, which justice doesn't mean today. Today, in our society, under the capitalist mode of production and the capitalist superstructure, justice is retribution. It's not putting everything in its right place, which a lot of traditional civilizations say that's what justice is. Justice is to learn the art of putting everything in its rightful place. Mm. And, um, and so when we talk about climate justice, in the context that it is used today, is actually a context that uh, is dealing with um, you know, retribution. But we are tired of retribution, you know, like we are tired of just, you know, like uh, vengeance and all these things. Can't we build new walls, you know? Can't we build other ways of being, you know? Can't we understand that it's not every time that we have to just, um, you know, um, there's a tradition in, the, in Islam which is very interesting, um, the, the Prophet Muhammad, one time he said, you, can, you, you have to help both the oppressor and the oppressed. And, and, and the people around, they were confused, like, how about, we know how to help the oppressed, but how do you help the oppressor? He said, you help the oppressor by stopping them from the oppression, <laughs> you know. And, and that's important. And that, that is important. Like, you just don't look at the oppressed. You also look at the oppressor. What happens to this human being or this set of human beings who have now decided that it is their birthright to dehumanize or denaturalize nature or, you know, uh, live in, uh, you, know, you know, all these things. And, and what you realize is that these people also, when, the, when our struggle, this struggle of ours, which sounds like madness today, that there's a few people who are talking about destroying capitalism and... Yeah. And even this mic we are using, this laptop in front of you, feel. I, I, I would like to describe this place so people feel like they they are here with us. You know, there's two tables, there's uh, boxes. We are still building this studio, right? Roll of and toilet paper. What do? How do you call this thing? Um, mixer. Like a mixer, yeah. Uh, there's a mixer. There's a roll of toilet paper. I don't know how that is here. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, all this. It's like a little room. It's very nice. It opens up to greenery. Yeah? Like us being in this room. Okay, what was I fucking talking about, actually? <laughs> 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 I've lost track completely. 
<laughs> I shouldn't have gone on this uh, tangent. A tangent. <laughs> uh, but, but basically, mm. what I was trying to say from the very beginning is that um, our conception of justice in this revolutionary movement of ours also need to be redefined. What does it mean? Because there's so many angry people walking around talking about, ah, yes, we, when we win, you know, we are going to do this, 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 you know? And then what happens? Okay, like, okay, for example, now the Ugandan Congress wins against Museveni. And now Museveni is just a weak person in front of them who has no power. What are they going to do to him? Mm-hmm. You know, will killing him be enough? You know? And these are very serious things to consider because... Our, our struggle is to defend the territory of life. Mm-hmm. So what would it look like now when we have one-time person who have destroyed everything and burnt everything around us and destroyed our comrades and whatnot, and now they stand uh, uh, in front of us feeble and weak? What would we do? And these are important questions. And decolonization is something around this. You know, when I was a younger, I used to like really hate Nelson Mandela. You know, Nelson Mandela has been called a state project. Hey, he sold out. I mean, there is an element of selling out of the ANC. But now sometimes I sit, I think, I was like, I mean, I've been there, you know, and I'm still there in that we have to win revolutionarily by any means necessary. You know, peace to Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz. Um, but um, now I think about Mandela's action in 94, that forgiveness. It's a very difficult thing. It's not easy. It's very easy to stay angry. But you know what is difficult? It's to stay rational. Because reason defeats high emotions. It, it can contain emotion without being ruled by emotion. You know, and I, I think that's something we need to talk about. And that climate justice thing, how do we move beyond it? What does justice mean to us? You know, what does climate mean to us even? What does ecological mean to us or ecology? What does sovereignty mean to us? What does autonomy mean to us? You know, what do these things mean to us? Do we really believe in these things or we echo them? You know, we, we, we have to ask ourselves, Fas'alil ahle dhikr in kuntum la ta'alamun or something like that. The Quran says, ask the people of, 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 of remembrance, if you don't know. It doesn't say, ask the people of knowledge, but it says, ask Fas'alil ahle dhikr, the people of remembrance. And, and I think for me, like, I'm not a religious person or anything. I might be, even who cares? I can be, or I might not be, but that, ask the people of remembrance, because knowledge is memory also, and we must never forget that. You know, that's why we have the hierarchy of elderhood in Africa. It was not a torturous uh, hierarchy, or it is not a hierarchy that uh, uh, doesn't recognize the existence of the young. It recognizes the existence of historical memory. Ask the people of remembrance. Ask the people who remember. Because not every elder also remembers. remembers. But this verse is saying, ask the people of remembrance. The people who remember. What would our elders tell, to tell us today about justice? What would they tell us about autonomy? What would they tell us about colonialism? 
you know and, and i think um that's something to think about and as part of the decolonial project is that we decolonize the the a the thing about age now today they're talking about youth empowerment and ageism and all of these things and these categories they're impo important but they can also alienate for me and for us who believe in our struggle is that for us it's not about the old or the young the white or the black even though these categories become important at some point to interrogate the most important is who are the progressive forces we can work with and for me ultimately that's what decolonization is about is about winning material reality and winning philo the philosophical fight and the ideological fight and also understanding that not everything that our people told us was stupid because there is a category of decolonial thought that is so deconstructionist that literally um tries to liberate us from tradition and tradition coming from the latin word tradere which means um what does it mean again transmission, transmission. so and we believe in transmission we don't believe in this up to date mm. thing you know i'll close with this actually the last thing you mentioned is very important because especially on youth activism uh, so to speak uh, and this is not to legitimize it because young people have always suffered and been born the brunt of oppression but you look at especially on the african continent from the late 80s and early 90s how uh, the the youth agenda and i say this in quotes is weaponized in such a way that it becomes more unhelpful than helpful to the young people so we have a generation which has been made to believe that it has all the answers, that they know how to proceed with their struggle. And so this generation has alienated itself from previous generations that were involved in struggle. There is no transmission of knowledge and experiences. And this generation, again, today's experience is uh, committing the same mistakes which they could have learned, which is why uh, we at Muamco have also uh, started uh, a process of uh, delinking by relinking, literally delinking from these uh, hegemonies of thought and practice by relinking with our elders. And in relinking with our elders, we 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 recognize that uh, none is superior to the other, that all of us have something we bring to the table, and it's possible to engage in a very constructive way with each other. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's. Uh, so let me <laughs> let me interject to ask one question, uh. and then after that, um, uh, I want to do one more thing, and then we can close. So, so the the question is, you know, for young, the young people of the world, our generation or younger, even our youngest, you know, mm. that yes. we've been spending yes. time with yes. for the past few days. Yes, shout out to Marika. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um you know um 10 years from now if the world is more decolonized um what is it going to require them to do to get there um i can we answer the questions of the future for the future that is actually very unscientific um they will have their own set of questions and they will have to answer them. We will have to answer our own questions, which we are trying to answer now. So for me, I think um, 
um, we can't answer those questions, and there's no but or however or therefore or whatnot. Uh, that is for Marika and his generation. Um, it is for Levi and their generation. It's for Ula and their generation um, to answer. It's not for us to answer. It uh, we we. I mean, one day like these phones of ours or these Macs of ours will look so obsolete. It's like. How are these people sitting there <laughs> thinking that they can yeah. answer questions? But look at us. We are, we are referencing their past, right? Mm. We were talking about Amilka Cabral and Kwame Krumah and Winnie Mandela and Angela Davis and uh, Ghassan Kanafani and all these people, you know? More Bookchin, all these people. They are our past, literally. Even though they're recent past, but they're still past. We cannot answer their questions for them. That's what I think. I don't know. Uh, me, I think uh, I also cannot speak for the future. I can speak for the present. And in speaking for the present, I think uh, my reference point is the past. In the sense that uh, uh, if it's we very Sankofa of you. <laughs> yeah, we have to, to look back to know where we are headed, you know. Uh, and I think when I look at maybe the past uh, uh, 80, 70, 80 years, I think one of the, the things we have to be conscious of and actively work towards is the organization of the masses of our people. We must form organizations capable of organizing our people in their mass-based dimensions, capable of educating our people, carrying, conducting political education with the masses, moving along with the masses, not just uh, a group of uh, intellectuals coming to speak uh, big words to the masses. Uh, and moving with the masses because it is the people who liberate themselves. And it is the people who, at that decisive moment in history, it is the people who turn the wheels of history. And, and maybe lastly and quite briefly, I think, uh, uh, for us on the African continent especially, there has to be a resurgence of Pan-African thought and ideas and ideals, which is part of what we've been discussing at the residency, activists in residence program here at TCDC this week. Uh, we had an interesting conversation with uh, Isa Shivji, and one of the main questions which had uh, come out of our group and which even at Muamko we have grappled with in the past is how to turn uh, Pan-Africanism into a viable political program. Because Pan-Africanism has worked in the past, Pan-Africanism can still work in the present. And, and Shivji's response was very interesting. He said, there has to be an insurrection of ideas because it is those ideas that will inform the actions, which will, or rather our actions will arise out of those ideas. And so I think we also need to be quite innovative in how we engage in struggle in this day and age. I know Aliu has uh, some thoughts on this, on, uh, especially around Pan-Africanism. I feel like we're going to stay here forever. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like there's going to be part one of this and part <laughs> two. But I want to do a rectification. That the verse I was quoting from the Quran is, First, Alil Ahli Dhikr, In Kuntum La Ta'alamun. And um, peace to all those people who believe in this and believe in the Quran and the Muslims and the believers, um, or for all the believers. But um, uh, the the... The thing about, hey, I have too many thoughts about this. I think we should close this and <laughs> then we will do another interview because, but in summary is that, um, uh, is that how does, um, how can we make Pan-Africanism 
that um, Sivji was quoting Suleiman Basir Jain from Senegal, how do we make Pan-Africanism into a category of human thought? You know, like how Marxism is a category of human thought now and, um, and all of this. Like how can we make Pan-Africanism into a category of human thought? And I think that's important. But for me, what is more important is how do we make Pan-Africanism into a viable political program, which also cannot happen without thought, you know, because we're trying to separate um, ourselves from that sort of um, reality where people just are very courageous without being clear. We want to be clear and we want to be courageous and we want to be clear about the fact that Pan-Africanism at one point in human history, not black history, not African history, not diasporic history, but in human history. You know, and I think this is one of the ways we have to center Pan-Africanist thought, not only as liberatory thought, but also as a human thought mm. universally. That in there was a time when Pan-Africanism was, was such a powerful force in human history. 1900, the first Pan-African Congress. 19 what? 1919, in Paris, the first Pan-Africanist Congress. On and on until um, a, a, a Kampala. Uh, 45 happens in the fifth Pan-African Congress, then the sixth, and then the seventh. A and these congresses were so important to human beings, you know, because it is talking about the systemic oppressions that have appeared within our people. And then we have to uh, dismantle this. So I've already, me, I've already started putting Pan-Africanism at the center of human thought. I'm not going to talk about Pan-Africanism as a specific uh, black or African project. I'm going to talk about it as a human project that uh, at the heart of it is emancipation, but also at the heart of it is the rehumanization of the human being, you know, that Cabral talks about. And... Um, you see, at the very beginning of the pedagogy of the oppressed by Paulo Ferreira, he talks about that dehumanization, that ontological dehumanization. And that is very important because every liberation project, every thought of uh, uh, that works around liberation, emancipation, redemption, works around rehumanizing the human being, both the oppressor and the oppressed. Because when the oppressor, uh, the oppressor sees you as a full human being because you refuse to be dehumanized, it rehumanizes them. Because that recognition itself, dialectically, is a sign that they have recognized finally that they're dealing with equals. So, for example, um, I will cl close with this. Is, um, the, the Ethiopian church or the Eritrean church in, in an a, a, a interpretation of turning the other cheek it's a very interesting interpretation. That turning the other cheek, when Jesus said it, it didn't mean to be docile. It was because what they interpreted is that it was the slaves who were slapped, they were slapped at the back of their hand. So when you turn the other cheek, you tell them, slap me from the front of your hand because I'm human. You know? Hit me like a full person. Yeah, hit me like a full human being. Then we will sort it out after that. You know, so... Um, we come from very mature and wise and beautiful histories and, and stories and all of this. And I hope that we don't forget them in this project of modernity because modernity doesn't recognize the past. It recognizes only that which is up to date, which the word modern actually means that we, that 
you know, all that is old is gold. Whether it's gold because it's reactionary, we can learn from it, or it is gold because it's progressive and we can take from it. Um, I mean, these are going to be my last words. Um, and peace to everyone who's listening. And um, this is coming from Mwamko. Uh, okay. Can you talk? T- tell people about Mwamko? Okay, cut this part. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> just stop at our peace. This is coming from Mwamko, please. Uh, I think uh, the last thing uh, I would say is that uh, it's, it's just to remember the words of uh, Marcus Garvey that we have a beautiful history, but we will create one that will astonish the world. And we, we, we create this history, or, the, or rather this history will not create itself out of a vacuum. This history will be created through the sweat and the tears and the blood of our people, in the sense that it will be created through their efforts to organize themselves into formations or organizations uh, that are capable of overturning the systems of oppression, overturning the balance of power. Uh, In this day and age, I think uh, we really have to look into the past, have to look into history and come up with strategies on how to confront uh, the capitalist system, on how to confront uh, imperialism in all its different manifestations, wherever it rears its head across the world. We cannot be isolationist. Uh, we cannot stick to our neighborhoods or countries. We have to organize and build solidarity and internationalism across borders, across continents, because we are confronted by a monster that has grown more interconnected, more networked, and more thorough and brutal over these past few decades, especially as technology continues to evolve more and more. But this, I think the issue of decolonization to us is very important because it's one of the questions we have been uh, trying to address and think about at Muamko. And even we do not believe that we have a complete response to it uh, or a complete solution to it or a complete pathway to it, but we believe that we are on the path. We at least we know the questions we need to ask and that we are in the process of uh, clarifying uh, uh, our responses uh, to those questions. But as I sa- finish, I wa- just wanted to say that uh, Muamko, uh, which we co-founded with Aliuba, uh, my friend, brother, and comrade, uh, is, uh, is, uh, uh, is, 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 is an organization born out of uh, conversations among people who have been in struggles in different countries, uh, people who have fought social rights, for economic rights, fought against dictatorships and many other things. And us sitting and having conversations and talking and saying, how come we are making these steps forward? But when we look back and analyze, we realize we've actually moved back. What is it that is happening to our struggles? And so it came out of that uh, yearning for a newness, that yearning for uh, a totally liberated uh, and unified Africa is the continuation of the unfinished project of complete decolonization. Thank you. Thank you. So you all have... Uh, can, we, can I do a shout-out to my people at Mwamko? <laughs> yeah, do it, do it. Shout-out to Sanamakawi, Makawi, mm-hmm. Chisungo, Charity, and Ricky, who developed our website, which we're still working on. And, and peace to everyone who has been with us on this journey to build Mwamko. The word Muamko is Swahili. It means awakening.
And uh, we are waiting for you people who are listening to this right now to join us. Please come with us to the other side. There's only freedom there. Peace. One last uh, thing. Uh, that's a good note to end on. But uh, I'm just dragging you into one more hopefully quick thing. Um, so you've decided not to speak for the future. But we have talked about aspirations in terms of decolonization. We've talked about it as a totality uh, for our planet and our species. Um, but you all met, uh, you two, uh, there, there are other members that some of whom you've mentioned in, in WAMCO. Um, but you two specifically met here at TCDC in Arusha um, some years ago and decided to embark on this journey together. And, um, you know, we share a lot of uh, political aspirations, um, but uh, there's also that friendship and that kind of uh, bond, that relationship that forms over time. Um, what are your hopes for one another? Um, for us is... Um, for, uh, let, me, let me be more specific. Mm. Aliu, what are your hopes for Sungu? Sorry if it sounds sentimental. Huh? It's okay. Aliu, what are your hopes for Sungu? Sungu, what are your hopes for Aliu? What I hope to see, um, uh, my hopes for Sungu is that uh, his dreads will grow longer. <laughs> and then I will regrow my, my hair again into dreads. Um, that um, um, Sungu has dreams of liberation and that um, he will win. And um, that uh, most of all, Muamko actually came out of that this organization that we are now building. It came out of this question you're asking. What are your hopes? Because we have, we have so many similar dreams, you know, to see a beautiful Africa. And for us, um, liberation, you know, I, I will speak to Sungu for three hours on the phone. I mean, Gambia is in Kenya, right? Like, hey, we will speak, at least in the week, we will speak maybe four or five times. And it will be on the phone for like two to three hours. And we're not talking about anyone, we're not talking about this, we're just like there, like, have you seen recently what had happened, hey? Like, oh, this concept or this idea, like literally, like, you know, so so I think my hope for Sungu is for him to see um, those dreams that we are now hatching and the liberation plots also that we are hatching, that they come to fruition. And also we all have our personal dreams and that that Ula grows to become a beautiful, righteous African, you know. You know, this is Sungu's child, that um, they become what we wish them to be and also what they wish to be in the world. And, uh, yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> my, my wish uh, for Ali, I think the first one is uh, that... Uh, he publishes uh, uh, his writing and his thoughts because uh, I personally believe that he's one of the most brilliant Africans uh, of our generation, one of the most, <laughs> one of the most uh, brilliant people in, in, in our generation. And I know he, he doesn't want me to say that, but I, 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 I really wish that uh, in this next coming years and that it doesn't take long, he's able to publish his written and also his unwritten work because this is also a generational responsibility. Each generation has its intellectuals. And unfortunately for you, 
in this generation you you have a historical burden which you must <laughs> <You've been> <laughs> to be one of them <laughs> which you which you which you must fulfill and for me that's very important and it's something i'm always actually trying to ask him so this uh, publishing thing uh, how, how should should it should we go about it but other than that i think uh, is that uh, because aliu has been at the forefront of struggle they have won against a dictator and then uh, but not one against the system in the past it's uh, for me it's to wish that he continues with that same dedication and energy and commitment to his people and to the masses uh, in his country and and to the masses of all of africa and the world all oppressed people across the world and that this time we win for real yeah we crush the system yeah i, I also want to say is like uh, msungu is very modest and very humble and um sungu is a, a deep thinker and a, and a, and, a, and a very nice writer he knows how to do all these nice little things where you just enjoy reading um the thing is we are writing a book but this book we have not even put one word to paper the two of us if it's it's called if we must win a love letter to the african revolution and i wonder if you see it in a bookshop maybe after 50 years or 300 years later just remember that to be promised you that there's a book coming out and um, we have talked about <laughs> it in Ghana in Kenya everywhere and we still haven't um, done it but um really like we actually have uh, two pages already written down did you write those pages because no. me i didn't write these pages i wrote Okay, so <laughs> so yeah, we have two pages for you people <laughs> very soon. So, Asante, thank you and um we'll meet soon, people. Asante, good people. Uh have have a blessed day and uh, many thanks, many thanks to Phil uh, for hosting us. This has been an interesting conversation. Thanks so much to you both and thanks to everybody who joined us for this conversation. 